Hi, listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by Dougie Center, the National Grief Center for Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Being a plumber doesn't mean the pipes in your house never leak. Being a doctor doesn't protect you or the people you love from getting cancer or having a heart attack. Being a landscaper doesn't mean your own yard is magically free of weeds. Why is it then that those of us who work in the grief world sometimes fall prey to the magical thinking that we will somehow be immune to the heartbreak when someone dies? I mean, logically, I know that isn't true. But I think somewhere deep down, I really, really hope it could somehow work that way. Megan Riordan Jarvis, a trauma-informed psychotherapist with over 20 years of clinical experience, harbored the same secret wish, a wish which imploded when her mother died in 2019, just two years after her dad had died of cancer. While Megan's training and clinical acumen didn't prevent her from experiencing grief, they did enable her to recognize when she started to develop PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and that she needed additional help. In our conversation, Megan and I talk about what was different about grieving after her father's death versus her mother's, about how she recognized the signs of PTSD and the treatment she sought out. And we also get into the concept of meaning-making and how it's important to clarify what types of meaning are supportive and which can be harmful. In addition to being a trauma therapist, Megan is a fellow grief podcaster. Her show is called Grief is My Side Hustle. She also facilitates grief writing workshops and is a prolific writer. Her memoirs due out in the world in 2023. Megan, thank you for being part of Grief Out Loud today. I'm really glad we kind of found our way to each other to have this conversation. I am delighted to be here. I love this podcast and it's really an honor. Thanks for having me. I've been enjoying listening to your podcast, Grief is My Side Hustle, and listening to you on other people's podcasts. And I was thinking like, you know, in 2015, when we started Grief Out Loud, I think there were maybe two other podcasts out there talking about grief. And and now there's too many, like not too many, there's too many for me to even count. Like I yeah. can't keep up with how many there are. And it's, I don't know, it's kind of heartwarming to think that there's that many people out there who want to listen to you and I yeah. talk about grief. Absolutely. I feel grateful for anybody who's willing. You know what I always say is like, it's not a giant moneymaker, you know, it's not like capitalism is running towards us and ha- you know, please, please. And I'm always really grateful when people are willing to step into the story with their own personal experience, which is most of the time and, you know, add to the places where we can have people who are really struggling, be able to say me too, I feel seen and known and, and therefore I feel a little better. And so speaking of the personal, I kind of wanted to start with, with yours and, you know, both of your parents have died. And I was just thinking like, what was unique about the relationships you had with each of them? Well, first of all, I have to tell you, anytime someone says to me, oh, your parents died. I'm like, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. That can't be it. My dad has been gone, oh, five and a half years, my mom, two and a half. And that's, that's still the way that it is. 
So my, so my dad died in 2017 of cancer. He was diagnosed with small cell cancer in 2016. And for people who don't know, small cell cancer is a lethal diagnosis. People don't survive it. And so from pretty much the beginning, I understood that he was really gravely ill. He did do chemo until his body couldn't tolerate it anymore. And what was, what was interesting for me, my dad had a job when I was younger that took him away from the home a lot. He traveled a lot and I have really warm memories of him when I was very young sort of under the age of 10 and then tougher. We had a tougher relationship. I didn't feel like I knew him very well. I didn't feel like he knew me very well. And I have five brothers and sisters and big families. It's complicated when he was dying. I, we had the, the best year of our relationship together because I was very clear. And I think he was clear And I was very clear with my family, with my husband, that I just wanted him to feel loved, that I didn't need to do more than that. And that that was what I wanted. I wanted to be with him in a place of love. So I spent probably four months going back and forth. He was in Massachusetts. I was in DC, just going and spending the weekend with him. And and he was not, he was very opinionated, very, very bright man who liked to talk a lot. And so in my younger years, it, it was irritating to, you know, (laughs) be a teenager and want to talk about the things that you were excited about and have to listen to my dad, you know, I don't know, giving a history lesson, which was sometimes what he did when I was sitting with him in that year that he was actively dying, I was very aware that the clock was ticking down and that these lessons and things that we were talking about were going to be the last time we got to do that. And it really felt very grace filled. Like I didn't, it was not hard to do. I wanted even the travel to get back and forth was not a hassle. And I really am like a baby about stuff. I complain about things a lot. So the fact that I didn't feel the burden of that, I look back on that year with a lot of gratitude for, you know, my profession and just understanding what I needed for myself. That is juxtaposed to my experience with my mom, which I'm, I was very close with my mom. I like to say I am very close with my mom. That was not also always true as I was becoming a young adult, trying to like have my own experience of being an adult, there was a lot of push pull between us. You know, this is what she would want. This is what I would want. I would hang up the phone. So we had um, some tensions when I was like in my early twenties, but I was 45 when she died and she had had a really short illness. I went, my husband is English. He took our kids to England for the summer, which sounds really romantic, but it's a bit like driving to New Jersey to see your in-laws, you know? And so I decided I didn't want to go on this one particular trip. And I called my mom and she said, well, we could go somewhere. And that was like a big deal because my dad's death was really hard for her. She was 19 when they married and, you know, she was really lost after he died. And one of the things that she had said was she missed traveling with him, but she didn't think she'd travel anymore. And so she was the one who said, let's go somewhere. And I was like, I'll go anywhere you want. I thought we would like go to Greece. And she said, let's go to Maine. <laughs> I was like, perfect. <laughs> Wherever you want to go. Maine is perfect. I mean, she lived on a beach and we went to a beach, but totally fine. Pretty much from the moment I saw her, I understood that she was sicker than she had let on. And we kept our trip in Maine very low key. 
my kids came back from England. I came back to DC. We were here. I, we were in DC for a day, turned around and went back up to drive to her house to be there for a couple of weeks in the summer. And she, when I saw her again, it was kind of like when you see kids and they have grown and you're like, you're inches taller. She seemed much more unwell than three days before. And my mom was, oh God, if my siblings were here, they would just tell you she was infuriating about doctors. Like your, your arm needed to be falling off in order for her to believe that you needed to go to the doctor, which has a legacy to it. Because now I take my kids to the doctor and, you know, if they sneeze, I'm, I'm <laughs> overly reactive. So I did in the period of time um, that we were there, I did get her to go to a doctor. She followed, I, we went to an emergency room. She had tests that were inconclusive. She followed up with her doctor and then she died in her sleep. And my experience with that was really crazy because I was, I got up very early. She died on a Tuesday morning. I got up very early that morning to say goodbye to some friends who were flying and then go pick up my best friend's son in Boston. So when I drove to Boston and parked the car outside my best friend's house, I had this sensation of water breaking in my body and so much, so, so convincingly that I looked down expecting to see wet. And then this thought went into my head, which was that she died. And so I knew she died. And so the kids came, now we have an extra kid getting in the car with us. And I called my husband and said, have you seen my mom? He was, he was at the house uh, working and he said he hadn't seen her. And I was like, you have to go into her room. I'm sure she died. And then I started driving and pulled over when he told me to pull over. But I, I mean, he told me she died, but I told him first. The very first thought I had when he told me she died was it's your fault. And when you say it's your fault, you meant yours, not your husband's. That's right. It's your fault, meaning mine. So, so I had a quick voice in my head and I could actually see the sentence, which is something that some people do all the time, but I don't do. I saw the sentence in my head, like, like saying to me, it's your fault. She died. And I called my five brothers and sisters from this like broken down crappy parking lot and told each one of them she died and it's my fault, which is a pretty crappy thing to do. I mean, I really was aware. I'm like, you're a trauma therapist. You're going to be telling them something super terrible, like do a good job. And not only did I not do a good job, but the year, about a year later, out of nowhere, I was like, oh my God, I have every one of my siblings partners phone numbers. Like, why didn't I call their partners? And so they could have been told in person. I mean, it's pretty early in the morning on a Tuesday. So, which I just added to the list of things that I, you know, held myself culpable for. I, I don't really hold myself culpable for those things, but it added to the list of things that I felt really pained by. I had this sort of adrenaline and the energy to do the funeral stuff, call the people, organized the luncheon. By the time we got back to my house in DC, I, I, the car ride, the miles from her house to this house were physically excruciating. And by the time we got here, I knew that I was, I knew I was exhibiting the symptoms that I treat in my office and other people. And I was like, well, the way we look at this is we try to treat it in the office. And if we can't treat it in the office, then it goes to what we call next level of care, 
which is inpatient. And so it was probably another month of me sort of trying to do EMDR, which is a, a specific kind of trauma treatment that moves energy across the brain in a way that calms the limbic system and also can move memories so they're not so poignant. That didn't really work. I got more and more isolated. I felt more and more um, terrified of people who knew me to be a certain kind of way coming into my space and seeing me the way I described it was like, I was an M&M without a hard candy shell. So I could just like melt. I had a lot of anger. I just, I wasn't angry that she died necessarily. I was just filled with anger. So the way in which people were trying to come and show up for me did not feel like enough. And I was not my best self Oprah during those moments. And Megan, as you're talking, as you know, as you described the relationship you had with your dad, his death, the way you showed up for him in the year before he died, and then the relationship with your mom and the response to her death, it's my sense was that you had very different expectations for yourself mm-hmm. in terms of like what your role and responsibilities were. And I wonder, like, you know, a few years out, what's your sense of like you had some you set yourself some pretty high expectations in the moment of hearing that your mom had died. Like I it was my responsibility to, to keep her alive. I should have had my best trauma therapist hat on and, and sharing the news with my siblings. Like, do you have a sense of like why or how the expectations around your mom's death were ratcheted up so much higher than maybe for your dad? That's an amazingly excellent question that I haven't been asked before. So I, I appreciate that. And I do, you know, I do think that you lose the person that you lose, but also a part of yourself. I, I was not like, actively engaged in my father's life. He didn't need me for anything and I didn't really need him for anything. I don't mean that as basic as it sounds, but a little bit I do. I spoke to my mom every day. You know, the thing that I would say that I miss the most about her is the like, I would call her to tell her about something funny or something that I was excited about. And then she would find it hysterical. And so it would magnify it by a hundred. So I already thought it was amazing. And then she would make it as big as the sun. She wasn't always as good when you had something bad happen. (laughs) She wasn't always (laughs) as comforting. In fact, that was sort of like a historically funny aspect of my mom is that some, you know, I called her when I had pneumonia in college and she was like, you must've been staying up too late, (laughs) but she really, you know, particularly as a mother, like having her amplify things that my kids did that you wouldn't, you know, I'm not going to like brag to my friend and have them be like, Oh my God, that's so amazing. I also think that from childhood, you know, I think that there was probably a fair amount of codependency with my mom and I'm, I'm wrapping up writing a memoir now. And when I ultimately, I don't think I said this part, I, I ended up checking myself into treatment in the same facility that I send my patients when the PTSD was just very clearly, I mean, my body just destroyed me. I mean, I threw my back out. I couldn't stand up. I, I really was like, okay, I got it. I got that. We're at next level of care. All the lights on the dashboard are lit up. Yes. Blinking at the same time. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you know, I don't have shame about that. That wasn't like a, oh, I don't want to have to be a person, you know, I feel incredibly proud of how well I took care of myself, but I 
you know, I did, it was expensive and it was time consuming and it was time away from my family. And I didn't want to have to do those things just like anyone would not want to have to do those things. But I, I, when I was in treatment, there were some things that were sort of illuminative, illuminated in a way that echoed to early therapy for me, talking about things, roles in my family and things that I wanted to be true and ways that I wanted to be able to show up that I sort of thought I, it was like Mythbuster, like, oh no, I don't, my mom and I don't do that this way anymore. Like I'm not trying to please her or I'm not worried about her. I actually, there was like a bit of a renaissance after my dad died with that, where I worried about her differently. And I felt responsible for, you know, making sure that she was okay. And, and I really cared about sort of like what she thought about what I, how, what kind of a mother I was, I really wanted her to approve of me in ways that like in my twenties, I'm like, I'm doing this. I don't care what you think. So I was really shocked in when I, you know, I know all the things I read, all the things I have all the degrees. I was really surprised when this therapist was like, well, that's your codependency. And I was like, no, I don't have that anymore. I got rid of that in my early therapy. And she was like, okay, well then we can just call this a relapse. So I think part of, you know, and and for people who are listening that don't know, codependency sort of means like in its basic, we think about it a lot in AA, but I don't mean it from a program standpoint. I mean, it was hard for me to determine, to distinguish my needs from her needs. And so I would look to her before I would check in with myself. And so when she died, there was this deep confusion about like, who even was I? And I had all the names, you know, I was a therapist and a mother and, you know, all the things and a wife and a sister and all of that, but I didn't feel that way anymore. And I think really that is what happened that there, I had a car, I had a minivan full of children that I had to take care of. I had five siblings that I needed to convey this information to. And I think what happened was I took care of my siblings and I took care of those children, but I didn't in that moment get to be the daughter who had just had this devastating event. And I think that made me sick. Looking back now, what sense do you make of the rage that you felt? Because that's something that's been coming up a lot lately in in the groups that I run and talking with people. Mm -hmm. And it's almost this like new embracing of rage as a totally valid and legitimate expression of grief. And just curious if you had a sense looking back, like what your rage was rooted in or connected to. Yeah. You know, I don't have rage, but I still have anger that we know so much about grief and loss and that it is just not generally something that we have decided that the population needs to know. I mean, when I talk about it on my podcast, people, and I talk about a lot about the biophysicality, right? Like humans live in bodies, bodies have generalizable reactions to grief and loss. If you're on a grief and loss board every day, you'll see someone say like, oh my God, my, I have no memory. And I'm like, I can literally tell you why you have no memory. And it's not even that complicated. I don't have to use any science words. I, I won't even say hippocampus to you. I'll just say there's a tiny little part of your brain that's reverberating from the trauma. It can't get the signals right, but it will come back. And there's so much pain because it makes people feel crazy. So as a clinician and a person, I actually have some righteous rage 
around the fact that here we are in an unprecedented time of loss, right? There's nearly a million people have died just in this country, which means we have somewhere around 9 million people grieving. And everybody feels like they're reinventing the wheel. Everybody is like talking to their grandmother who's giving them her personal experience from 1979 instead of core grief education, which I know is something you guys are about. And it, so I have that rage. I think the anger that I had when my mom died was, and I call it Megan Dumble Guns. And I, again, it's an interesting full circle thing with therapy because when I went to therapy, which was, you know, because I broke up with a boyfriend when I was in my twenties and I was so heartbroken. And I went there and the therapist was like, yeah, we're definitely going to work through this. And also we might talk about your family of origin. And I was like, I was like, they're perfect. We don't need to have any of that conversation. Like, (laughs) trust me, they're not the problem. And, you know, 15 years later, um, and I'm so grateful for that. But, but one of the things that I discovered there was that I did not ever have any anger. And so like you do in therapy, we work to find where is my anger because you can't you know, squish one emotion and not be squishing another. So it was made very clear to me that, you know, if you experience anger, you experience anger, don't put that out. So then in my sort of mid twenties, I became a very angry person. Ang- anger was, it was like turning on the faucet and letting me have it. And I was pretty reactive to lots of things. And then it sort of swung into the middle, like pendulums do and hung out there. What I have come to understand and new even in early therapy is that when I am afraid, I react with anger. And so, and so I call it Megan double guns. And so when I'm, when I'm my best self, if I am ready to shoot you with both my guns, burn your house down and push your car into a river, I know to stop. And like the image I have in my mind is that I turn around and look behind me for the little kid who's afraid. Because that is always true. That was true when my mom died. I just, everything felt terrifying. I, I, things didn't feel like they mattered anymore, including to some degree, my being a mother and my children. I certainly didn't feel like I could do my job. I had a lot of the existential, like, where do people go when they die? And will you ever see anyone again? And what is the point of life? And this was all pre-COVID. I also felt like I was doing that all alone while everyone else was playing baseball. So the anger really was about how unbelievably stripped down and, and all the secondary loss and all the destabilization I felt, and I'll be really honest, I think I thought by becoming a trauma therapist, I was going to get to skip that part. I think I thought I'll know all the things and do all the things. Like becoming an interior designer means you don't have to hire one when you get a house. Turns out that's not what happens. (laughs) That's not what happens. And so I, I think, I think my anger was reactivity. And I think the reactivity was to how unbelievably unbearably afraid I was. And how all of your skills and your knowledge and your professional experience couldn't protect you from that fear and couldn't wipe it away for you. No. And now I sort of find it ridiculous that I ever thought that was the case. And that if a client had come to me, I would be like, well, that's not how the world works. I don't know that I was conscious of it, but I, you know, I came into the world of therapy because my 
you know, boyfriend broke up with me. I fell in love with therapy because it helped me heal some wounds from a death of a beloved teenager in my childhood that had sort of gone unresolved. And I spent a lot of time feeling really intense feelings as a child and thinking that there was something wrong with me instead of, well, it's totally and completely normal to have super intense feelings when you're eight and a 16 year old dies and nobody ever talks about it again. I, you know, I, I look at some of this and think maybe I was always destined to be a trauma therapist. I don't think I understood that the little kid in me who had been pretty deeply traumatized by that death and needed more help and support grew up to be a trauma therapist with making the promise, like, don't worry, we'll never need that kind of help again. And so when you did come to that place of like, oh, okay, I need another level of support. This inpatient treatment is where I'm headed. And in that experience, I wondered what were some of the modalities, because I think for folks who haven't gone to an inpatient treatment program, it's a little mysterious, like what happens in there? And so just curious, what were the modalities that you found to be the most helpful and supportive in your grief? Um, yeah, that's a great question. And, and my memoir has a lot of chapters whenever, you know, I don't know when it's coming out yet, but, um, sometime next year, I think it has a lot of chapters about both what it's like to go to a trauma facility, which is, I think if we have a picture in our minds, what we're picturing is an addiction facility, which lots of people are being treated for trauma there, but a trauma facility is really about, folks who are, their central nervous system is overwhelmed because really that's what trauma means. Trauma means an event happened and you create this limiting negative meaning inside your five senses. So, you know, for me, it was, I can't be a mom. I can't be a wife. I can't do my job. And, you know, my body is betraying me. Unsurprisingly, maybe, the same treatments that I love to use in my office were the ones that I love to use there. And that actually wasn't news to me because the kind of trauma trainings that I, that I use are ones that require you to participate in them. So it's like, we're not going to, I'm not going to take somebody down a dark tunnel that I haven't gone down myself. So I use EMDR. And when you're trained in EMDR, you, somebody uses EMDR on you. And I described that a little bit. And they, they there, as I do, blend EMDR with IFS, Internal Family Systems, which is Dick Schwartz, which the best way I can explain it is you, you pull up memory and use your imagination at the same time. So I'll give you an example of um, how we use this. So I had a session. I, I was inpatient for three weeks, which is a very short stay. Um, I had a session probably in my second week where the therapist asked me, what is the worst memory that flashes? Because my PTSD showed up as images and, and that same thought, it's your, it's your fault that she died. So I had lots of images of my mother's dead body, but I also had the image of the parking lot that I described with the minivan and all the kids in it. And it was just really excruciating because that moment felt like sort of self-betrayal where it was like, I could, I could pick to be my my own caretaker of my own crumpled self, or I can be a mom to these children. And I, I really did pick those kids. 
And I always wonder like, what would it have been like if I didn't do that? So in the IFS session, we, we went to that moment and I felt it in my body. I smelled the street. I saw the car. I heard the noise of the cars. And then my therapist asked, and what did you need in that moment? What could have helped you in that moment? Just with that one cue, I imagined that my oldest brother, who's often, he has kind of a dad quality to him, drives up into the scene with his wife. His wife drives the minivan home. And instead of what did happen, which was I drove that minivan an hour and 13 minutes home without telling anyone what happened while my daughter was box breathing with me because she could see something wasn't right. Instead of that, which was what actually happened. And then I got to the house and my husband was there and a police officer was there. And then I went into the house alone. I imagined that I drove with my brother, that he drove me, that we talked together about how upsetting everything was and that we went in to see my mother's body together so that the experience of seeing her, which was so stark and terrible, wasn't something that I did alone. So even the pictures in my mind of her body included my brother. And, you know, that really did unlock some of the, some of the looping of the memories. And that, that, that really is one of my favorite techniques. So after you use your imagination, then we take the resolution and use EMDR to sort of tap in that resolution into your system. And so even though I can remember what actually happened, it mostly feels like my brother was there. Almost like creating a different frequency for your nervous system to run when that memory comes up. Yeah. And I'm trained in sensory motor psychotherapy, which really is about calling into the body, the memory of generally of the freeze state. So fight, flight, and freeze. Freeze is where most trauma happens. So calling that back into the body and then letting the body do something other than freeze. And even though it's not what happened in reality, the body doesn't really know that because it's being triggered into time travel anyway. You know, it travels back to that moment of terror and it doesn't realize it already survived. And so, you know, with your imagination and using your body as the tool, you can rewire how it experiences it which is amazing to me. And, and the body's and mind's desire to heal is just so vast. It's really humbling. So those are the treatments that I primarily use, but I will say like I did breath work there, which is different than um, breath work is a very specific use of sound and a rapid kind of breathing that makes you feel a little stoned. And sometimes you have visions, um, I did brain spotting, which is a little bit like EMDR and a little bit like, um, a little bit like, uh, breath work. I did, we did outdoor adventure. I went down 700 million zip lines, like across, I mean, I did trust falls like off a six foot wall and a professional football player caught me. I mean, I walked in there and was determined to do everything possible to come back to my life. You're like, this is a strange metaphor, but like a very eager trauma camp or that's, I called it trauma camp. That's how I referred to it to my kids. You know, I had to say something to them and I was like, Oh yeah, it's trauma camp. 
And one day they called or I called them and um, they were like, what'd you do today? And I was like, I went down 14 zip lines and I climbed a telephone pole and I fell off a porch into the arms of a professional football player. And they were like, you're not at a hospital. (laughs) I really am not at a hospital, but everything, you know, the thing about inpatient treatment, which is such an unbelievable gift is that everything is therapeutic there. So that, you know, I, I still have some trouble sleeping. Um, you know, and I do want to say to folks that with PTSD, like it's not gone, it comes and goes. I, I, I I still battle those thoughts of it's your fault. Some days they are relentless with me. I have a part of my mind that understands it's not my fault. And then I have a part of my mind that really is missing her and having a hard time living without her. So wants to walk along that pathway, you know, in that relentless pain, because it's actually easier to blame myself than it is to think I've lived two and a half years without her on the planet. But I did all the, you know, there wasn't anything I wasn't willing to try. Megan, as I was getting ready for this interview, something clicked in my mind in a way that it hadn't in the 20 years that I've been, you know, working in the grief field. And it, it came out of an interview that you did on the Shapes of Grief podcast. Sometimes there's like terms or concepts that I'm just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I nod my head at them. And I'm like, I haven't actually examined what that means. And one of those for me is meaning making, you know, we hear like, eventually in grief, you know, we make meaning and like, that's the thing to do. And I was like, yeah. And then I thought that means so many different things to so many different people. And so I want to talk with you about it. Because, you know, in in a conversation I had with David Kessler, he talks about finding meaning as like, finding meaning in your life again like what does it mean for me to engage in my life and then there's the idea maybe of like the death means something which starts to slide into that like everything happens for a reason world that makes me grip my teeth (laughs) and and then you know in in your interview you talked about how for kids when they're growing up and they have an experience and their needs are not met that sometimes they make meaning out of that experience and they tell themselves a story that they weren't good enough or they shouldn't have had that need or they didn't deserve to have that need or they didn't ask for it the right way or a hundred other ways that they might make meaning about that experience that perhaps isn't the most like supportive and nourishing to them. And I thought nobody ever questions the meaning we make about the death or about our grief. There's just an assumption it's always positive. So I wondered if you could talk about your take on when we say to people, well, you have to learn how to make meaning out of the death. Like, what does that mean? And how do we not just assume that always is positive? It's such a great question. So the short answer to the question is that probably without naming it as such, when you, when you get to a negative meaning, you're talking about trauma. Because trauma is the the system, whether it's the body believes it or the mind believes it. And lots of times it's both. So if I'm in a car accident and I was injured and I had to go to the hospital, I have different meaning about getting into a car. Trauma is I was in a car accident. Traumatized is I believe it is unsafe to be in cars. So I'm making a meaning out of the traumatic event that happened. 
that's where we go from it just being something that happened to something that now influences my life. And when I was talking about children, so one of my degrees is in child development and, you know, there's the healthy trajectory that we learn in school about what children are supposed to do. And children developmentally move from one stage to another as their bodies and their brains grow. But when you're eight years old, as I was, and a teenager dies, and no one ever says a word about it again, you're left with your eight-year-old intellect to make meaning. And so I can tell you the meaning that I made. This is a brutal story. But it happened in the summer. Um, someone that, you know, my family was very close to this young man named Chris and he died. And it was brutal for my whole family because we were on the beach the day that he, he died. We didn't realize he had drowned. And I was eight. My mother instantly, when we heard the news, my older brother was the person who found him in the water. And our family, you know, it, it was chaotic for a moment. My mother grabbed her rosary. I did not know the prayers of the rosary. So when my mother said, we're going to say the rosary immediately, I knew that I was going to fail at this task because I didn't know them. I knew two of them, but I didn't know them all because there's some totally random prayers in that rosary. I don't know if my siblings knew them. I just assumed they did. And we said these prayers and I also didn't know why we were saying them. I assumed it was to like resurrect this person who had, I had just been told had died when he was not brought back to life. I assumed it was because I didn't know the prayers. And so at eight with complete silence, I assumed that I was implicated in the death of this teenager. And there was, I mean, we didn't talk. There's no way anyone would have thought that. But when you talk to a child development specialist, they will tell you, of course, an eight-year-old thinks they control everything. Everything that happens, including the rain, an eight-year-old believes is somehow personalized to them because their brain has not developed enough to say otherwise. And so, you know, when you talk to people about when their parents got divorced, often they think it's their fault, even when they have data that shows them it couldn't possibly have been their fault. And that is because of sort of the self-centeredness of a child's brain. So when I think about making meaning, I do think you're right that there are multiple ways to think about it. I, I hate the one and I, and I encounter a lot of people who are like, listen, I'm not going to start a foundation for my sister because she died of cancer. That's not what it's not going to become the whole thing that happened in my life. I'm not sure that for some people who start a foundation, that that isn't actually a trauma response because you had a life before your sister died of cancer, and then you completely pivoted and shifted your life. And now it has a different meaning. So yes, we, that's great. You've raised millions of dollars for cancer, but it may be that that's sort of like reaction formation, this idea that something really terrible happened and you had a strong reaction to it to sort of compensate for it. So I don't assume that anybody's meaning is positive or negative, but I do think being able to say the meaning of their death is not just negative is really important. It is really important to be able to say they died and, and not they died, but, 
right? They died and. And so a lot of the things that I do every day now would were not in existence when my mom died and are connected to my mom dying. And I was also traumatized. And I feel like are the ways in which I can carry the narrative of she died and my life continues. I think his notion that it is important to be able to find something, whether we call it meaning or just the last part of the life that they had is the death. They had all this life beforehand. So we need to be able to look back and say, I remember them as a positive influence and I loved them in their life, but also my life is not totally limited and ended because they died that it still has meaning. That's how I think about it. And I don't I don't know if that is a satisfying answer. No, I just think it's helpful to have a bit more of an examination of that because again, I think when you hear the term make meaning, that means a lot of things to a lot of people and there's just an a, an under like an assumed understanding that like, oh, okay, once you've made meaning, you're like you're good. <laughs> you know, grief has moved into this new phase, you've made meaning. And then it it always felt so like, put a bow on it kind of feeling to me, but I didn't understand why. And the more I think about it, too, it's what does this death, or this loss, or this major transition mean to me? What has it meant to me in my life? What has it meant to me in the past, in the present, in the future? What does it mean about my identity? What does it mean about my role in the world? Like having the opportunity to really assess that so that you can continue to find the and in life. This means I am no longer in this role and I have this other role now or whatever it might turn out to be for somebody. You know, and the other thing that I think is important, and I say this pretty much every time on my podcast, is that I don't believe that a loss is something that happens to you. I think I think grieving is something, I think we become a griever the same way we become a parent. And so when people are looking at grief as a task to accomplish, I think I think there can be a lot of anger in that. I think being told that you're meant to make meaning or that the brutal way in which you lost your child will someday feel better is wildly insulting and incredibly minimizing. But I think if you reframe it to be, this is who you are now, and I hope that isn't only awful, that that is really the, the, the uh, maybe the task of grieving is that their death is not the only thing that you got from their life. That to me feels like, you know, because I wasn't a mom until I had my daughter. I just wasn't, I loved kids. I babysat a lot, but she made me a mother and no one has ever implied that that was a problem that I was making too much of it, that I was saying that I was a mother too many times or that I will ever not be a mother. But there is this odd thing around grieving, which is like, this is who I am now. I will grieve my mother for the rest of my life. And I already know this because I've had other losses in my life. But but the relationship that I had with her, I will feel the loss of her forever. It, it just, I, I know that to be true. I'm pretty comfortable with it. There are days where it's excruciating. But I think... Um, 
I think if we are able to frame it in that way, which is like, okay, well, you're a teenager now, you've gone through puberty now, you are a griever now, because we will all be grievers. Not everyone starts that at eight. We will all, it doesn't matter if you're a ballerina and you're a construction worker, the one thing you're, everyone is going to one day be, is someone who grieves. And then once you are, you are never not, you are never not. It doesn't always feel so heavy, but you are never not again. I mean, if you go further with your analogy with parenting, it's like your responsibilities as a parent change over time. That's exactly the core. The core identity of it remains with you. And, you know, speaking of core identity, I, I can't believe that time has flown by in our conversation and we are coming to the end of it. And I, you know, your experience has become a big part of your identity and a big part of your work in the world with your podcast, Grief is My Side Hustle. And you've mentioned your memoir that's coming out and some of the other work you're doing. So I'm wondering for listeners who are like, 45 minutes isn't enough. I want more Megan time. Like how can people connect with you, continue to hear your voice and your thoughts and your and your, your wisdom and insights in this realm? Oh, that's so nice. So, so I do Grief is My Side Hustle. Um, it has a lot of writing on it. It has all my podcasts. You can click into them. I have two seasons of podcasts. I have so many great guests. This, um, I just love podcasts. I love geeking out with all the people who are, you know, like, oh, I love talking about death. Um, and I also have a really active Instagram page. I jump on there to do reels. I, I did a little box breathing, you know, technique today. I, I just, if it, if I'm thinking about the vagus nerve, I'm going to jump up and talk about that. So I do a lot of little like sound bitey um, bits and pieces. People can email me, DM me. I'm really responsive. I have a lovely assistant who's also really, you know, make sure that people get to me. So I, I love to interact with folks if they have questions and concerns. I also do a lot of lecturing at companies. So if people are, you know, interested in it, one of the, one of the weird things about COVID has been that we have all had to take on this role of increasing our ability to sort of talk about and approach and support grief and loss. And it's been really um, heartening to me that I'm getting calls from HR departments and, you know, human learning and asking what can we do for our employees and, and how can we help and, you know, which is really, really lovely. So, I, you know, you can contact me for anything. I'm happy to have it. I'll always talk. I'll always talk about loss. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm realizing we might have to have part two of this conversation to delve more into that realm of what companies can be doing, because I think that's an ongoing question of how to like operationalize that. So yeah, Megan, thank you for your time, for your stories. For your work and listeners, as always, I'll put all of that in the show notes so you can find Megan and connect with her. Megan, thank you again for being part of the show. Thank you so much for having me. And listeners out there, yes, I say it each and every time, but thank you for being part of our listening community and for making the show mean what it does. Speaking of meaning making today and for sharing episodes with people, posting it on your own social media channels. We just really appreciate you helping to kind of broaden the reach of Grief Out Loud. If you want to reach me directly, you can email me at griefoutloud at dougie.org. That's D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G, which is also our website where you'll find all of our past episodes, information about our local programming, downloadable tip sheets, activities, workbooks, all kinds of other resources to explore. 
So thank you again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Grief Out Loud is sponsored in part by the Chester Steffen Endowment Fund. 